Some of you might recognize that photo. At the very least, you might recognize the cigar in the photo and who that belongs to. That photo was taken on the day that amounted to the end of the Second World War. There were still a few things to be dusted and ironed out in various places. But that photo was taken on the day Winston Churchill announced that the war with Nazi Germany was over. And one million people celebrated in the streets here in Britain. It must have been one of the most joyful days there's ever been in Britain. And the joy came because people knew what they had been saved from. The defeat of the Nazis was not something that happened far away that had no bearing on British people's lives. Everyone here had experienced the effects of the war in some way. And news reports from the rest of Europe showed them what it would be like if the Nazis actually invaded Britain. It would be infinitely worse than what they'd already experienced. And for a while, it had looked almost certain that Britain would be invaded. Winston Churchill had not tried to hide that bad news from the British people. In his broadcast to the nation, he had been very honest about it. And so when the Nazis were defeated and the war ended, people knew they had experienced genuine deliverance. They were seriously happy because they knew they'd been saved from something that was seriously bad. If their lives had not been under an authentic threat... They wouldn't have experienced this outpouring of authentic joy. Well, what has that got to do with Romans? Well, the subject of this letter is the gospel of God. The good news that through Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can be delivered from the guilt and power of sin and set free to serve God. That's what Paul is going to talk about in the bulk of this letter. And he introduced that good news in the first half of chapter 1. We looked at it last week. He said the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But having introduced his good news, Paul now sets out to answer an important question. Who needs the gospel? Who is this good news for? When the Second World War ended, it's hard to think of anywhere in the world that wasn't excited by the news. And that's because the reality of the war really had affected the world. Not only Europe, but also Africa and Asia and America. And from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter 3, verse 20, we're going to see that the gospel is good news for all of humanity. Because all humanity needs the salvation that comes through the gospel. In other words, Paul knows that before we can appreciate the good news, we have to grasp the bad news. We have to see that the good news is not some dry information 
for people who are into that kind of thing. Now, the good news Paul preaches is something every human being desperately, desperately needs. You and me, our families, our friends, and our enemies. We all need it. And so this morning, Paul is going to give us the bad news. And he's going to do that so we'll be able to fully appreciate the good news. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, down to verse 32, the end of chapter 1. If you haven't found it yet in your Bible, that's page 1128, or in the large print, 1745. And our passage actually begins in verse 18 with the word, because, or for. Now that is not clear in the NIV. But that word because tells us our passage is linked to what came just before it. And what came just before was Paul's announcement in verse 17. That in the gospel, the righteousness of God or from God is revealed. Paul's good news is about being in the right with God. Those who believe the good news are declared by God to be not guilty. And to help us grasp how wonderful that is, Paul begins verse 18 with the word, because. He's saying, let me give you the background to the good news. Let me tell you why salvation was needed. It was needed because, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is God's word. This passage is bad news that helps us appreciate the good news. And we could sum up the message of this passage in two words, guilt and wrath. Paul tells us the world is guilty, and that includes you and me. And he tells us the consequence of our guilt. We are under God's wrath, all of us. First of all, Paul explains the guilt in verses 18 to 23. He says, humanity is without excuse. And Paul points to two pieces of evidence that prove we are guilty. In verses 18 to 20, he says, humanity is guilty of suppression of the truth. Notice at the end of verse 18, he says people suppress the truth by their wickedness. Christians are often accused of being suppressed, meaning they deny themselves stuff that they could be enjoying. But Paul turns that idea on its head. He says, no, the true suppression happens outside of Christianity. That's where truly great things are being denied. It's really important to get what Paul says here. He says no one can claim they have denied, been denied the ability to know God. He says the knowledge of God is available to everyone. It is humanity that denies and suppresses that truth. Look again at verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What exactly is Paul saying? Is he saying that someone who has never heard of God should be able to go for a walk through the fields and come back singing in Christ alone. Because the grass and the sky tell them all there is to know about God. No, that's never going to happen. And it goes way beyond what Paul is telling us here. 
He's simply saying that every human being is born with an awareness, a perception that there is a God. It's a kind of intuition that's just stitched into the fabric of our minds and hearts. We are created beings, and we are created with an awareness of that. It's part of us. We are born into a created world, and we cannot observe this world without knowing at some level that there is an eternal, powerful creator behind what we can see. So Paul is not saying, if you look at the flowers and think hard enough about what you see, then you really should be able to figure out there's a creator behind what you see. That may be true, but it is not the point Paul is making here. He says, we know there's a creator. We know it without being told it or having to think about it. It's a truth that is stitched into the fabric of our minds and hearts. But, Paul says, instead of seeking the God we're aware of, Instead of pursuing him and asking how we can know him and worship him, we suppress the truth that's built into us. We live in denial of that truth. And so not one of us can make excuses with God. At the end of verse 20, Paul says, people are without excuse. God has not shut himself off from us. And if we change the stitching idea, we could say God built us with a God-seeking chip wired into us. But we go out of our way to rip it out of ourselves. And in fact, Paul says, we go even further and we take part in the evil exchange. Verse 21, for although they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Throughout these verses, the verbs are translated in the past tense. But Paul is describing a situation that's repeated in every generation, including our own. When he says, although they knew God, the sense is they had an awareness he was there. But instead of acknowledging him as God and worshiping him, human beings redirected that instinct to worship. They perverted it into idolatry. Idolatry is worshipping something that's not God as if it is God. And I think we can say that biblically, idolatry is the root sin. Meaning we can trace every other sin back to idolatry. What was Adam and Eve's sin? They put themselves in the place of God. They wanted to be the ones to decide what's right and what's wrong. 
That authority belongs to God. But they wanted it for themselves. They wanted to be God. That's a form of idolatry. And we can also put another person in the place of God. If we give that person our allegiance instead of God. That's what happens, for example, when someone who professes to be a believer marries an unbeliever. They have idolized that other person to the point where they're willing to disobey God in order to have that other person. We can idolize other people's opinion of us. We can idolize money and possessions so that we live to serve them rather than God. We've put those things in God's place. And it's important to realize we can idolize good things. Tim Keller says, the human heart loves to make a good thing into its God thing. Rest is a good thing. But we can turn it into a God thing. When we live for holidays and leisure and amusement. Sex is a good thing. But we can turn it into a God thing. Family and work are good things, but we can turn them into God things. In fact, John Calvin said our hearts are idle factories. We are endlessly creative in the way we take worship that belongs to God and give it to other things instead of God. We are all guilty of this evil exchange. That's true whether we're a tribesman somewhere bowing down to a wooden carving or whether we're a scientist worshipping human cleverness, a philosopher worshipping human wisdom and reason, or a wolf on Wall Street worshipping money and power. We're all giving our allegiance to something. We have not stopped being worshippers. We can't stop being worshippers. We were created to worship. But we pour out our worship on things that are not worthy of worship. And we refuse to worship the only one who truly is worthy. And that makes us fools. Verse 22. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. One Christian philosopher says this, and as he speaks, he's looking back on the days when he worshipped his own reason. At the time, he thought he was becoming smarter the more he denied the reality of God. But he describes how he was actually becoming more foolish. This is what he says. Visualize a man opening up the access panels of his mind and pulling out all the components that have God's image stamped on them. The problem is, they all have God's image stamped on them, so the man can never stop. No matter how much he pulls out, there's still more to pull. I was that man. And his point is, the further we go on this road of suppressing the truth, 
and directing our worship away from God, we might congratulate ourselves that we're getting smarter, that we're getting more enlightened. But in fact, we are becoming more foolish. No matter how many degrees we have, we're just dreaming up ever more sophisticated ways to deny what we know deep down is true. For example, in terms of brain power, the physicist Stephen Hawking is probably one of the most intelligent people alive today. And what is Stephen Hawking's explanation for where the universe came from? He says, the universe created itself. Francis Crick discovered the double helix structure of DNA. So he was a brainy man in terms of potential ability. And he realized the theory of evolution didn't adequately explain how life began. So how did it begin? Well, Francis Crick was an atheist, so he certainly wasn't going to say God. Instead, he claimed the raw material for human life was brought to earth by aliens. Anything to avoid the conclusion that it might have been God. Paul says that kind of bloody-minded denial of God is not just foolish, it makes humanity guilty before God. That is true for the most celebrated thinkers who find elaborate ways to deny God. And it's true all the way down to the most ordinary person in the street who lives for their Friday nights at the pub and their dream of winning the lottery one day. Humanity is without excuse. And because of our guilt, we are under God's wrath. If you glance back up to verse 18, you'll see Paul says that at the very beginning. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. When we speak about God's wrath, we do not mean that God has a bad temper. We're not saying he explodes with rage if things don't go his way. No, the Bible tells us God's wrath is a very predictable, stable thing. It is God's firm, settled opposition to everything that is evil and unholy. That doesn't mean God's wrath is insignificant or unimportant. It means his wrath is not like a toddler's tantrum. And his wrath is fully justified because he is perfectly holy and he's perfectly good. He is infinitely deserving of our worship. If he ignored evil, including the root evil of idolatry, he would not be God. Opposing evil is part of what it means to be God. And we know from Scripture that God has promised to pour out his wrath in an ultimate way in the future when Christ returns to this earth. 
At that time, those who don't belong to Christ will experience the full measure of God's wrath in hell for all of eternity. But here, in verse 18, Paul is not talking about that ultimate future outpouring of God's wrath. He says in verse 18, guilty humanity is experiencing God's wrath now. Today, God's wrath is being revealed in this world. What does that involve? Well, having explained in verses 19 to 23 that we're guilty and that we deserve wrath, beginning in verse 24, Paul tells us what it means that God's wrath is being revealed today. It means humanity is consigned to captivity. Suppressing the truth of God does not lead to freedom. That's what people like to believe, and that's what we're all told. But in fact, it leads to slavery. A life without God is a life in captivity to our sin. Paul says that's a life under God's wrath. We have chosen sin and immersed ourselves in sin And in response, God hands us over to our sin. Three times in verses 24 to 32, Paul uses the same phrase. He says, God gave them over. He does not just stand back and watch us. He says, this is what you want, then this is what you're going to have. God actively hands men and women over to the sin they have chosen. Instead of living under his good and wise authority, they live under the destructive authority of sin. And notice the first two times we find this phrase, God gave them over, it's in regard to sexual behavior. Why does Paul focus on sex? I think it's because of all the areas in life where people want to be free, sexual behavior is right at the top of the list. That was true in Rome in the first century, and isn't it very obviously true today? Isn't the general opinion today that in this area of my life, No one can tell me what to do and what not to do. If I want something sexually, why shouldn't I have it? Why shouldn't I be free to do what I want? But the Bible says, actually, that's not freedom at all. Those who are demanding their sexual freedom are living under the tyranny of their own impulses. They are enslaved by desires and lusts. Look how Paul puts it in verse 24. Therefore, meaning because they have suppressed the truth and chosen idolatry, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Obviously, verses 26 and 27 are dealing with homosexuality. And we're all aware that homosexuality is the hot sexual topic of the moment. And for some Christians, this may be a very confusing issue. Because when the media deals with this, it presents homosexual couples who are in loving, long-term relationships. And they seem to be lovely, caring people. And the question thrown at Christians is, why shouldn't these people have what they want? And as Christians, we can feel a bit stumped by that. We can end up thinking, I know what the Bible says, but honestly, I have trouble seeing why it's wrong. If that's what they want, if they're committed to one another, why is it wrong? Well, here are four comments in response to that. First of all, God invented sex. It was his idea in the first place. He gave us the ability to have sex. He knows how it's supposed to work. And he celebrates sex when it follows his blueprint. Our God is the God who puts Song of Solomon in the middle of the Bible. And it is not just there to tell us that Jesus loves the church. God made us as sexual beings. Whether we are single or married, our sexuality is designed to bring glory to God. So my first comment is, God does not frown on sex. He is delighted when we enjoy sex as he intended us to. Second comment, that does not mean every sexual impulse that we have is good. It doesn't mean it is right for us to act on every sexual impulse. God not only created sex... He reserves the right to determine the boundaries for sex. And we cannot avoid the fact that the Bible presents some sexual behavior as sinful, including homosexual behavior. Now you might be aware that some people who claim to be Christians try to deny what I have just said. They claim that God, even if he doesn't celebrate homosexual behavior, is at the very least okay with it. How do they get that out of these verses? 
Well, notice that verse 26 talks about women exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And verse 27 mentions men abandoning natural relations with women. Some people have tried to say that what Paul means by natural here is what feels natural for each individual person. So, the argument goes, Paul is not saying homosexual behavior is wrong. He's saying it's wrong if it doesn't feel natural for you. If you feel attracted to women and you have sex with men, that is not natural for you. All I can say about that interpretation is that those who argue for it simply have no integrity. It is not possible to read Paul's letters and come away with the idea that the number one thing for Paul is being true to your own desires. No one can argue that with a straight face. You can disagree with Paul but you can't claim that's what he's saying. Pick just about any page of Paul's writings and you'll find the call to deny yourself. You will not find Paul saying, God's happy so long as you do what feels good to you. Paul is not talking here about people behaving like homosexuals even though they don't want to be homosexuals. Neither is he talking here about men taking advantage of boys. That's another interpretation that has been suggested. Clearly, he's talking about adult women and adult men following their homosexual desires and engaging in homosexual behavior. In the context here, the word natural can only mean what is natural in terms of God's creation order. That's what Paul has been talking about. And according to God's creation order, which is given in Genesis chapter 2, according to that order, the natural blueprint for sex is that it's to be enjoyed between one woman and one man in the context of lifelong marriage. Any other expression of sex is wrong. Following on from that, a third comment. What I've just said about homosexuality applies equally to any other sexual behavior that's outside God's blueprint. Christianity does not pick on homosexuality. According to the Bible, homosexuality is not the sin. It's one of a long list of human acts of rebellion against God. We'll see that Paul gets to that at the end of our passage. I mentioned earlier the reason sex becomes a point of conflict so often is because it's one of the main areas where humanity wants to assert its freedom from God and its independence from God. Think about something else that the Bible condemns. Think about the act of murder. According to the Bible, murder is a sin. But no one is arguing we should be free to commit murder. 
So the media doesn't attack Christians when we say that murder is wrong. God's sexual boundaries make people angry because they want to overthrow God's sexual boundaries. And that leads to my fourth comment on this. As Christians, we do not need to deny that there are homosexual couples in long-term, stable, caring relationships. It is true that the overall reality of homosexual relationships is much more chaotic than that. But we do not need to deny that there are some lovely men and women who are practicing homosexuals. It's true. Some of us may know some of them. But that does not change the fact that their homosexual behavior is rebellion against God. A man or woman may defy God with a pleasant smile on their face, but they are still defying God. Doing it pleasantly doesn't make it okay. None of us would ever make the opposite argument. We'd never argue that heterosexual relationships are wrong because some people in heterosexual relationships happen to be angry and inconsiderate and unfaithful. So let's not fall for the media's conjuring trick that tells us sin is okay if it's done by pleasant people who really want to do it. And don't forget Paul's point here. He's telling us that men and women who indulge in sin, all the while believing they're free, they're actually in captivity. They are enslaved by desires and lusts. They have suppressed the truth God has wired into them, and God has given them over to their sin. Their desires are bent out of shape. And fulfilling those bent out of shape desires is not freeing. It's destructive. In our rebellion against God, we are attracted to things that will ruin us. Indulging those broken desires leads us sooner or later into misery and decay. So long as we are alive on this earth, we will have to deal with our broken desires. We'll have to deal with the idol factory that's in our heart. That's true for Christians as well as non-Christians. So if you have homosexual desires, please listen to what I'm saying. You are not weird. You are not out of place here. You are experiencing one particular form of broken desires. And we all have broken desires of one form or another. But when we live to serve those desires and those idols, that is evidence we are under God's wrath. That's what Paul is saying. 
I believe that's what he means in verse 27 when he mentions people receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What he's saying is the due penalty for our rejection of God is a life under the tyranny of our lusts and our idols. Now, I would guess that as we first read verses 26 and 27, there were probably two main reactions represented among us here. I've already mentioned one of them. It's the reaction of struggling to accept what God says about homosexual behavior. If that was our reaction, we need to remember that God is God and we are not. Authority belongs to God in every area of his creation, including what we do in private. That's one reaction to these verses. But some of us will have had a different reaction. Some of us have no trouble with the fact that homosexual behavior is a sin. And in fact, we find it to be the very worst sin. And we're very glad that we don't do it. Because whatever sins we might be guilty of, we're certainly not as bad as that most terrible sin. If you've just woken up at this point, I'm not saying that's a good reaction. I'm saying it's the way some of us do react to homosexuality. The Bible calls us to be honest. So let's admit some of us have that reaction. And then let's listen together to Paul's words in verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love. No mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. If any of us thought that we stood on a higher level than others because we're not involved in one particular sin, here Paul corrects our misunderstanding. He says humanity suffers from a comprehensive corruption. In verse 28, we have the third occurrence of this phrase, God gave them over. And what Paul is explaining in these verses is the doctrine of total depravity. That does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be. It means everything we do, every area of our lives is infected by sin. Human hearts are filled with every kind of wickedness. 
We have no reason to feel proud because we're not guilty of one particular sin. If we just scan down the list here, we will find ourselves in there somewhere. Greed? Anyone? Envy? Any takers for gossip? Arrogant? Merciless? The banner of God's wrath covers each one of us. We all stand condemned. We have all rebelled against him. And that does not mean the sins that we thought were big are actually small. It means all sins are big. All sin is worthy of his wrath. And humanity is in slavery to it in one form or another. That's the bad news. And as you and I appreciate this bad news, as it really sinks into us, it is oppressive. And as we feel that oppression, it can be like a weight on our chest. And if we get to that point then we are ready to appreciate the oxygen of verse 16. Look back to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. God has not left us to be crushed under his wrath. He has not left us to the slavery of our idols and desires. God's Son came to be crushed in our place. He came to deliver us from our slavery. That good news has power to save us if we'll accept it and put our trust in it. Maybe you're ready to do that this morning. And if you are, you could use the words of the next song we're going to sing. It says, I come by the blood. Let's all of us stand and sing this together before we remember Christ's death around the table.